You must have grown up in Frontier. <laughs> Siddhartha Gautama, the future Buddha, was born 25 centuries ago to the ruling royal family of the Shakyan tribes in the foothills of the Himalayan mountains. Prior to his birth, 64 holy men gathered and predicted that the child to be born would either be a great universal monarch or a spiritual savior. This news perturbed the king because he was anxious that his successor, his child, succeed him on the throne. And after the infant was born, a prominent ascetic of the time visited the palace and holding the infant in his arms, he began weeping profusely because he saw very clearly all the markings of a future Buddha on the child. And he told the king that he wept because he'd not be alive to hear the teachings of this Buddha. The king was so perturbed that he determined that this child was going to be brought up in great abundance and luxury and protected from every difficulty of life. He wanted to ensure that nothing would awaken this child's call to spiritual destiny. And so this is what he did. Siddhartha Gautama grew up in great abundance. His every need was taken care of. It's said that he had a palace for every season of the year. Midnight gardeners would move through the flower beds and remove all the dead flowers so that the eyes of the prince would not fall on these two. And for 29 years his life continued this way until one day he decided to visit a nearby flower grove. And he did this with his charioteer. And on the way to this flower grove, he suddenly stopped the chariot and asked Chandaka, asked him, what is this that I see before me at the side of the road? And Chandaka said, this is an old man. He said, everybody that is born one day grows old. And Siddhartha was so profoundly disturbed by this that they turned the chariot around and returned to the palace. And a few days later, they endeavored to make the same journey again. And again he stopped the charioteer and asked him what it was that he saw beside the road. And the charioteer said this was an old person. And he said, furthermore, everybody that is born one day too will grow old. Again, very anxious and upset by what he saw, he turned the chariot around and again returned home. And on the third endeavor to get to the flower garden, they came upon a dead body beside the road. And Chandaka said, this is the lot of everybody that is born, that they will one day die. Shaken and upset, they returned again home. And on the way, Siddhartha saw something that he'd never seen before also. 
stepping out of the woods nearby was a mendicant, someone who had shaven his head, renounced the householder's life, and gone in search of his own spiritual, uh, gone in search of spiritual understanding and truth. And Siddhartha determined that that was what he was going to do. And he went home, bade farewell to his wife and child and father, and began his own spiritual journey. For me, it always seems that the parallels between the first 29 years of the Buddha's life and the society in which we live today are poignantly similar. That the walls around his palace have now become the walls of our nursing homes to which we send old people that to some extent we might be protected from the pain of their aging. That the midnight gardeners in his gardens have become the men that arrive to whisk away dead bodies that we might be protected from what has happened. And they return those same bodies just a little while later, made up to look more lifelike than those people looked in the last days of their living. We have euphemisms for death in our endeavor as a society to make ourselves more comfortable with the difficulty that there is with the truth of our dying. Youth is so worshipped in our world, and old age and sickness is so shunned. In the Mahabharata, one of the great Indian epics, somebody is asked, what is the most wondrous thing in the world? And the reply is that what is most wondrous is that everybody believes and knows that everybody else is going to die. But so few people truly believe and know that they too are subject to that same fate one day. The obituary pages tell us of the news that we are dying away. While the birth announcements in finer print at the side of the same page inform us of our replacements. But we get no grasp from this of the enormity of the scale. There are seven and a half billion of us on this earth, and all seven and a half billion must be dead on schedule in this lifetime. The vast mortality involving something like 75 million each year takes place in relative secrecy. Less than half a century from now, our replacements will have doubled the numbers. It's hard to see how we can continue to keep the secret with such multitudes doing the dying. The Buddha exhorted his nuns and monks to come to terms with death, not to terrorize them or to create fear in any way, nor to scare the living daylights out of them either, because that really would just be another bondage, another prison. His reasons were totally different. Out of compassion and love and kindness, he exhorted them to come to terms with their mortality, 
for he knew that there was such fullness and healing possible in living with an appreciation of our death. And really, in all the great spiritual traditions, the central question is always this one of mortality. It's really the high question of the holy life. So then the question must be, how is it for us living in a society where we are so protected and insulated from the fundamental truths of humanity, the truth of old age, disease, and death? How is it that we can come to a deeper understanding of this? Well, certainly one of the ways is doing exactly what we do here. This meditation is really a direct refuge in those truths of humanity. In our presence, with the arising and passing away of every sight and every sound, every thought, emotion, taste, there is a birth and a death happening on whatever level it is that we are observing. There is so much change going on. And really, the question is, where is yesterday? Where is last year? Where is our childhood? The seasons, they come and go, and already each branch outside manifests the buds that promise spring, even in the middle of all the snows that have come. And it seems that to live fully, we must die fully too. And what is it that we have to die to? Well, it certainly seems that everything that is solid is really what we have to die to. We have to die to our personalities, to our bodies, to our self-images, to our careers, to all the ideas that we have about ourselves that are in any way solid. Alan Watts talks about living with the wisdom of insecurity. Accepting our aging, accepting the changes. For me, this seems to be the great and brave and courageous practice of life, is living with insecurity. This is Rumi. He says, a fire on the left, a lovely stream on the right. One group walks towards the fire, into the fire, another toward the sweet flowing water. No one knows which, to, which are blessed and which are not. Whoever walks into the fire appears suddenly in the stream. A head goes under on the water's surface, that head pokes out of the fire. Most people guard against going into the fire, and so end up in it. Those who love the water of pleasure and make it their devotion 
are cheated with this reversal. But the trickery goes further. The voice in the fire says, the voice in the fire tells the truth, saying, I am not the fire. I am the fountainhead. Come into me and don't mind the sparks. If you are a friend of God, fire is your water. You should wish to have a hundred thousand sets of moth wings so you could burn them away one set a night. The moth sees light and goes into the fire. You should see fire and go towards the light. Fire is what of God is world consuming. Water is world protecting. Somehow each gives the appearance of the other. To these eyes you have now what looks like water burns and what looks like fire is a great relief to be inside. A number of years ago, I um, ordained at a Burmese monastery in California. And the practice that we did there was on the 32 parts of the body. And for months and months and months, the nuns and monks there did this practice where we focused on these different elements of the body. The hair, the skin, the different fluids of the body, the bones. And after a while, what began to happen was that there was an experiencing of the body as something far less solid, but we came to experience it just as changing elements. Things began to feel a lot more fluid than they'd ever felt before. There was a lot of fear there, because whenever something that is solid begins to break down, there must be fear. But there was also a lot of joy. It really felt like the truth was beginning to come out in the open. The Buddha, too, used to send his nuns and monks into the charnel grounds, into the burial grounds not as some gloomy or morbid practice, but really just to encourage them to confront the reality of mortality that is so manifest in these places, apparently. For really what is true is that life is uncertain, and what is absolutely certain is our death. The only question is when it's going to happen. Don Juan said to Carlos Castanedas that death is our eternal companion. It is always to our left at an arm's length. It has always been watching you, and it always will until the day it taps you. The thing to do when you're impatient is to turn to your left and ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you or if you catch a glimpse of it, or if you just have the feeling that your companion is there watching you. Death is the only wise advisor that we have. Whenever you feel that everything is going wrong, turn to your death and ask it if that is so. Your death will tell you that you're wrong, that nothing really matters outside of its touch.
one of us here has to learn that death is the hunter and that it always is to our left. And there is no need to see your death either. It is sufficient that you feel its presence around you. About 18 months ago, I visited South Africa where I grew up. And I was sitting with my mother in the living room of their home in Zululand. And my father called out from the bedroom. And we went into the bedroom and he was in the middle of a massive heart attack. I called the doctor and we both rushed to either side of him. We whispered words of encouragement, words of love and words of letting go into his ears. There was great sadness, but there was also great presence in those moments as we held him. And he was clearly in an enormous amount of pain. I watched each of his breaths more closely than any breaths that I've ever watched before. Nagarjuna says that life is so fragile, more so than a bubble blown to and fro by the wind. How truly astonishing that those who think that after an outbreath that they will surely breathe in again, or that they will awaken again after a night's sleep. He died in our arms before the doctor arrived. And when the doctor arrived, I, I arranged that we, that we be with the body for a long while before they came to take it away. And so my mother and I went outside and we got these great big fronds of bougainvillea that were blooming and brought them in and put them beside the bed. We changed his pajamas, we washed him, we changed the sheets. We combed his hair. And for many hours, we sat and held him, meditated with him and prayed for him. We kidded him too. And we said all the things that we wish we'd said if he was still alive. And as his hand slowly turned cold in ours, and we were just silently together for several hours. I realized that this had been the most sacred and special time of my life. It's clear that all the years of practice had prepared me so much for this moment. And it's an opportunity that I'll never ever forget I had to stay in South Africa for a month longer than I thought. And I'd gone to South Africa to be with two friends who were living with the AIDS virus. Roy was a lover of mine many years before, and he died before I got there. And my friend Michael died soon after I left. So it was really a, a very difficult holiday. And when I came back, 
to, to America. Two weeks after I returned, I found out that I too was HIV positive, that I was carrying the AIDS virus. This was on July 9th. In that moment, I took my place in the community of 40 or so of my friends who have been affected by the virus, some of whom are still alive and, and some who have died. This thing that I had feared so much, I realized was now a part of my life. I suddenly found myself in that place of fragility and unknowing that the Buddha had been exhorting me to consider so strongly for so long. I'd like to share a little of this journey with you of these last 19 months. Of course, I'd not choose to live with this virus, but it's now a given in my life, and there certainly have been lessons that I've learned that I believe would never have been possible otherwise. The first days afterwards were really nothing like I'd ever expected possible. There was a sort of an excitement and an anticipation and a joy that was there. It was really strong and very surprising. Partly, it had to do with relief, just the relief of knowing after being fearful for so long. It also partly had to do with the heart protecting itself from the enormity of the information that I just received. But really, most of that feeling had to do with the real deep knowing that there were going to be some big changes in my life. That there, were no, there was no way that I was going to allow any longer the things that I'd most hoped and wanted to do not to happen. It was like death had become my advisor, and with it as a yardstick, great changes began to happen. The first thing that I did was I ended my career as a financial consultant. It was something that wasn't nourishing or nurturing me at all, and there just seemed no place for that anymore. Also, many relationships that I had that for whatever reason were not serving me or serving the other person just began to fall away. There seemed to be a much greater honesty in relationship with people. And ways of being in the world that were petty or unnecessary or that were hurtful just seemed to have fallen away in the context of life as I'm living it now. And that just seems to happen spontaneously and organically. And really that continues right up until today. On the other hand, the, the most incredible decision that I've made in the last 19 months has been the decision to begin teaching, to begin sharing the Dharma. It's something that many of my own teachers have been encouraging me to do for some time, and for reasons of feeling unprepared or coy or unready, I'd not done it. And yet, doing this work, doing 
what I'm doing this evening brings me a greater joy and the deepest sense of fulfillment than I've ever known in my 40 years. It really does feel like a healing into life. Well, the honeymoon didn't last for long. <laughs> um, the next months were taken up with a real nightmare of blood tests and medical examinations. I sometimes felt that there could no longer be any blood left for them to take, but they still managed to do it. Just the endlessness of specialists and alternative healthcare people was really exhausting. And I decided to sit the greater part of the three-month course last year as a sort of a rite of passage from what felt to, to be a real nightmare into a future that I knew nothing about, of course. And I began the retreat, and it was like this volcano went off inside of me. It was like these huge fears and terrors and rages and angers just were awakened inside of me in a way that had not happened before. One morning on the other side of the loop, I was standing under this tree and all the leaves were as beautiful as they are in, in the fall. And as the sun came up and took the top of the tree under which I was standing, it dropped all its leaves on top of me in that moment. <laughs> well. I completely lost it and I broke down and I started crying and I cried and I cried and initially it was my father. It was like I hadn't cried for my dad until then and I cried and then it became about this loss of future that I just felt that there was no future and it just felt like that was such a loss and the loss about the illness, and then my friends, and then it just became the sadness. It was just this great sadness was just with me for weeks and weeks and weeks. There was no part of me that assumed that the leaf that left the tree above my head, that I would be around to see it when it touched the ground at my feet. Everything became so fragile and so uncertain. This is from the Diamond Sutra. Thus shall you see this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a, flashing, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, a dream. I used to sit in the back of the meditation hall and I would look at the heads of all the people sitting in front of me and there really were times when I felt the deepest gratitude for the fact that I knew that I was going to die one day. And I wondered how many people in the meditation hall were going to die before me without being shaken and woken up as I had been. It was really amazing. And when the, the snows came in 
around Thanksgiving, things really began to quieten down. I began to know a peace and a calm in the practice that I'd not ever known before. This was the time of the awakening of the equanimity for me. And I really saw that it was possible to be as okay with the sadness and with the fear and with the pain as it was to be with the joy and with the rapture and with the happiness that was there also. It was so wonderful. So it was also a time of a birthing of an appreciation and a gratitude that was new to my life. There was such gratitude for each breath, for each life. My love for the Dharma felt like this great big radiant sun that had come out from the clouds in my heart. I really felt that I was glowing. And I felt so protected, not protected from dying because I knew that I was going to die, but protected from the knowing that on no level was I a victim of this virus that really all that had happened was that I was taking my place in the scheme of things, in the way of things. Letting go is always such an easy thing for me to say, it always was. And yet really this has been the hardest lesson of all. It never rolls off my tongue anymore the way it used to. (laughs) Letting go of the idea of future, of good health and of ability has been so difficult. Some days it feels that everything reflects back to me what is not there anymore. And I realize in the fire of this teaching that out of compassion and love for myself I have to die to the way things used to be. I have to die to Gavin the athlete, Gavin the tennis player, Gavin the skier. I have to die to all the way things used to be. I was thinking today that I also have to, go, have to die to the Gavin that would never go anywhere near the special needs table <laughs> <laughs> in the dining room. <laughs> have to die. <laughs> but I have to die to the way things were so that these memories are not any longer the yardstick against which I measure the present moment. This really feels like the ultimate profound act of compassion in my life now. And really this is all of our challenges. As we get older, as infirmity happens and as ill health comes our way, 
dying to our history and to the way things used to be seems to really be the big challenge of it all. In the last months, my symptoms have escalated and at times I've known pain far beyond anything I imagined possible. It seems as though the virus's involvement in my neuromuscular system creates a fire that sometimes feels as though it'll totally consume me. At these times particularly, I need to be as momentary, momentarily present with the bare experience of what is going on as possible. Anything more than the bare experience is unworkable and is really overwhelming. It's the real stuff of the meditation practice. And what is it that is more than the bare experience of what I'm dealing with? Well, it's the projection into the future, which can be so terrifying and so unhelpful. What's also more than the bare experience is the diagnosis and the prognosis of a medical profession that feels the need to conceptualize and rigidify what it is that I'm dealing with. If I get enmeshed in that gridlock of concepts, there really is no space for the healing that I aspire to, to happen. And what's also more than the bare experience is the fear and the ignorance and the anxiety of others that constellates around what I'm dealing with. And I need also to be free of that. I need particularly to be free in those times when people already have me halfway in my grave. Because the truth of this time is that there are many ways in which I am more alive than I've ever been before. If I have anything to do with it, I'm not on my way out yet. <laughs> <laughs> the possibility of just being present with what is happening feels to me to be the most priceless jewel that I can give myself. And I'm deeply grateful to all of you that have made it possible for me to be here and to do what I'm doing now. It seems like the most important thing in my life. There are times when I feel a gratitude for the virus. Not always, mind you, so don't quote me on this. <laughs> but there are times. There have been blessings. I'd like to share in closing some of these blessings with you. My refuge in the teachings of the Buddha, in the Dharma, feel unshakable these days. There is a strength and a resolve there to find the deepest meaning in this nightmare. I feel so grateful that it's possible for me to have the meaning that I do have in this because I've seen so many of my friends wither and be overwhelmed and die so soon after the impact of the diagnosis. 
my refuge and community feels so sure. There are people in my life, many of them new, who teach me great lessons of love. They guide me and help me and support me in ways that I never thought possible. Long before my own diagnosis, I believed that in this web of interconnection that links us all, when one person is HIV positive, we all have AIDS. Nobody is immune. And in sharing and speaking of my diagnosis this evening, this is a very real part of me taking a deeper refuge in the Sangha here. The lessons of friendship and good spiritual friends have been really profound. I've come to see too that taking refuge in the Sangha also has much to do about receiving. That our willingness and strength to receive is a great gift that we give to one another. In Brattleboro, where I live, the Sangha is large, vibrant, committed, and cohesive. And each Sunday, as they're doing at this moment, we meet up there and sit and share the Dharma. I've been held and loved and supported deeply in the last ways, in ways that I never ever thought were communally possible. giving and receiving on so many different levels, we've created up there for ourselves a gift of Sangha beyond price. Another blessing of this experience is that I've been taught precious lessons about the gift of self-love. There is an inner tenderness and gentleness here that was not here before. With the difficulty and challenge of what it is that I have to deal with, there seems to be no time left for the inner conflicts, the violence, the lack of forgiveness that was there before. And there still is much more to learn. But things are different. I know also that there is a possibility for joy. Even in the throes of the most extreme physical pain I certainly have ever experienced. So it really is with some sadness that I reflect on what it has taken to wake me up to the lessons of these last 19 months. But I guess that's really the way of things. But my prayer here for us is that all of us hopefully will know the fullness, will know in the fullness of our lives the deep joy and peace that must come in coming to live in harmony and in contentment with the certainty of our mortality. 
This is T.S. Eliot. He says, we shall not cease from exploration. And the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know that place for the first time. Through the unknown remembered gate when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning. At the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall and the children in the apple tree, not known because not looked for, but heard, half heard in the stillness between two waves of the sea. Quick, now, here, now, always, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, when the tongues of flames are enfolded into the crown knot of fire, and the fire and the rose are one. May we sit together for a moment, please. For me, one of the most inspiring aspects of the meditation practice that we do here is its utter simplicity. In the simple willingness to be present, so much is possible. And in the natural unfolding of the practice, the healing that does happen, happens on so many different levels. And perhaps one of the most important levels of this healing is the healing out of insensitivity. The healing into a sensitivity to the body, to the heart, and to the mind that is potentially so deeply freeing. Sensitivity to the body. Well, certainly one of the things that happens is that we become so much more clearly aware of the needs and of the limitations of the body. And in that knowing, we are able to live so much more, uh, we're able to respond so much more appropriately to those limitations. And we're able to respond so much more clearly to the needs that we perceive. The Buddha said that the body is the temple of the spirit, the raft by which we cross to the other side. Living less in conflict with our bodies and more in harmony and balance with the truth of them seems to me to be such an important act of inner compassion that comes as a process of the meditation. And certainly also, as the sensitivity deepens, we come to see the change that is happening on every level that we experience the body. Certainly what the physicists and the scientists are telling us now, the Buddha was aware of 25 centuries ago. And living in alignment with that truth is a further act of the inner compassion that is possible. Living in harmony with the certainty of our death. And 
living with greater ease with the illness and with the aging that must happen is really so much a part of the healing that comes with the practice that we do here. Sensitivity to the body, sensitivity to the mind and heart. As the sensitivity deepens, we come also to know the shadings of the heart, the gentlest clouds that pass through that we were never aware of before. And what this means is that we're much less a victim of these clouds and of these shadings. We come to hear also the muffled whispers playing below the surface of our worldly persona. And this too is potentially so freeing. We hear what has been called the unfinished symphony. The unfinished symphony of unfulfilled dreams, of uncompleted lives, of shattered hopes and dreams that never came true. We perhaps hear also the unfinished symphony of all that is unapproached, all that is unresolved. For some of us also, we come to know and sense a great heaviness of heart, a great protectiveness and closeness of heart, designed by a child determined never ever to be wounded again. And this heaviness and closeness, this protectiveness of heart can be so dense that the great light that is there has no way of shining through. And the great voice of our heart has no way to be heard. And the question then becomes, how is it that we can get closer to that unfinished symphony, to that heaviness of heart, and say yes to the fear Yes to the sadness, yes to the grief, and to the anger. For what is so true is that the path of awareness can bring us into the domain of the heart. But very often it is the practice of forgiveness that can ease our way gently and tenderly into the center. This evening I'd like to talk about forgiveness, both as a meditation practice and also as a force in our lives. I feel it vital to emphasize that when considering forgiveness, on no level is it implied that there is a condoning of something that never ever should have happened. How can we say yes to rape or murder or torture or abuse? That would be unthinkable. Rather, forgiveness is a power and a strength and a maturity of mind and heart that can bring really deep and powerful healing on every level.
My parents were very poor. Their childhood was impoverished, and when they were teenagers, they left South Africa and headed north, my father to fight in the Second World War and my mother to nurse there. And when they, were, when they returned to Africa and were married, it was with the realization that they would probably never have children because my father apparently had been injured during the war. And so it was a great surprise when exactly nine months after they were married, I arrived. And they tell me that they wanted me to have everything that they never had. And the decision that they made when I was still very young, when I was about five years old, was that they sent me off to an old boys boarding school in South Africa. 300 miles away from our home. And during my seven years there, I was physically and sexually abused in a really sustained way. And what I'd like to do this evening is share with you some of the lessons of forgiveness that I've learnt. For me, I believe it's probably going to be a lifelong practice. Forgiveness relating to my parents, to the teachers at school, and to the older boys. I now know that the spiritual crisis and the unworkability of my life in my twenties had much to do with the aftermath of those years. And it was during a three-month course here at Barry that I felt like the curtains went up. It was like a veil went up. And behind that veil, I was able to know and see those years with an objectivity that I'd never done before. I saw for the first time in my life that everything that happened there was deeply and profoundly wrong. I experienced also again the overwhelming loneliness and friendlessness and terror of those years. And beside me on my cushion was a rage and a betrayal, a sense of betrayal and anger and a terror that was enormous. There was such a deep and profound sense of shame. And it continued for a long time. A couple of months into this process of just being so furious and, and angry with these people, I received a letter from my mother in which she said that she and my father were very confused that, about what I was doing over here, that I'd given up my career as a financial consultant and that I was at this place meditating all the time. But she said that she wanted me to know that whatever the reason, she really loved me very deeply and that she would support me in whatever way she could. And it was like this lightning bolt that cut through everything that I was feeling. And I had my first experience of forgiveness then. It was so wonderful. It was such a blessing. And then I kind of jumped in there and I rubbed my hands and I thought, oh well, there we are. I've like had the forgiveness, now I can get on with following the breath again. I felt quite pleased with myself. 
But that was really the first lesson that I learned. And that was so often the process of forgiveness is that, that it is a process. Really, as we bring the forgiveness to one level, in some ways what that is doing is opening up for the deeper level to begin to arise and present itself, where a new level of forgiveness can be worked with. It really is sometimes a slow, transformative process. And for me, I've needed to be very careful that there are no models for how the forgiveness needs to be. That it's really this beautiful blossom in our hearts, in our lives, that will open in its own time as it needs to. And really what is important is that there be a willingness or an intention to forgive. Sometimes it's just not possible for there to be a sense of forgiveness. And that's okay too. If the woundedness is deep, it would seem that the process perhaps needs to be longer than it would need to be in other cases. I don't imply that in every situation it needs to be a long and protracted one. After that time of sitting, I went back to South Africa and I told my parents what had happened. They didn't know. And it was wonderful. For them it was very difficult. They were upset. But for me it felt like a barrier had come down between me and them. I also went back to the school and I had three meetings. I had one with the students, I had one with the staff, and I had one with the headmaster, with the clergyman who was there at the time that I was at the school, and with several of the other masters that were there 25 years earlier. <coughs> when we were all settled in our seats, the headmaster leant back. He showed me all the photographs on the wall of the rugby team and the soccer team and everything. And he said, oh, you know, we did so well this year. Our rugby team was first in the league. And, and I said to him, I said, I've come a long way for this moment. I said, all I ask of you is that you listen to what I have to say. I told him about IMS and I told him about the meditation practice. And I said that for some of us, in this process, we go back to times in our history and experience them free from all that made it so painful, from all that made it necessary for us to close down at that time. So I said to him, you have no reason to be concerned about the accuracy of what I'm going to tell you, because it's as clear to me as the books on your desk. And I told them everything that happened. Again, it felt wonderful. It felt like a great unburdening. The clergyman dissolved into tears next to me and sort of slithered into his chair. It was really difficult for them to hear it. But after my meeting with the headmaster and the students and the staff, I felt like I left this great weight behind. And this was another lesson that I learned. And that was the real importance 
of getting the truth out into the open. And it doesn't really seem to be necessary for the people that were actually there to be present either. They said to me in the meeting, who was it that did this to you? So that we can follow up on it. And I said, 25 years later, you've got to follow up on something that happened. I said, I've not come here to blame anybody. I said, I've come here for three reasons. I said, one is to have the opportunity to speak my truth. And I said, I've come here also to unburden myself. And I said, I've come here in the hope that what happened to me will never happen again. And it seems so important that in the telling of our truth, that we do that in a way that doesn't keep the cycle of anger and abuse still turning. That we do our truth-telling in a spirit of compassion and connectedness and healing. And over these years, I've come to realize also the great importance of patience in the practice of forgiveness. In these nine years, the issue has changed somewhat, but really it is an ongoing process. Sometimes it's intense and sometimes it kind of eases away. But most often in my dreams, they are populated by people of that time. And in preparing this talk also, it stirred it up quite a bit again. And developing a long, enduring mind and heart with the whole process seems to be such an act of kindness. This is a quote that really helps me so much, or has helped me and still does. St. Francis de Sales, he says, Be patient with everyone, but above all with yourself. I mean, do not be disheartened by your imperfections, but rise up with fresh courage. I am glad you make a fresh beginning daily. There is no better means of attainment to the spiritual life than by continually beginning again and never thinking that we've done enough. How are we to be patient in dealing with our neighbor's faults if we are impatient in dealing with our own? He or she who is fretted by his or her failings will not correct them. All profitable correction comes from a calm and from a peaceful mind. Each day, or most days I do, forgiveness meditation. And some days, it's just not there. And that really needs to be okay also. Keeping our hearts open in the hell of its closing is so difficult sometimes, and yet it would seem to be so vital and such an act of mercy. There really are no shoulds in the process. In such a real way, it would seem that the practice of forgiveness is a gateway 
back into our own hearts. For we treat ourselves sometimes in ways that we would never ever treat anyone else. The Buddha said that if we looked all over the world, we'd find no one more deserving of our love than ourselves. The Sagadatta says, all you need is already inside of you. Only you must approach yourself with reverence and with love. Self-hatred and self-distrust are grievous errors. Your constant flight from pain and search for pleasure is a sign of love you bear yourself. All I plead with you is this, make love of yourself perfect. Deny yourself nothing. Give yourself infinity and eternity and discover that you do not need them. You are beyond. I returned to North America and I sent back to the school a wealth of information and documentation about dealing with sexual abuse at the school. They'd done nothing about it over the years and so I felt this was a good way to support them. And I've never, right up until this day, heard a word from them. About five months after I returned, I received a magazine from the school, which they put out periodically. And in this magazine, they go to great lengths of describing the accomplishment of the old boys and what they're doing and where they're living and, and all of that. And they always give a lot of attention to old boys who visit the school and speak to the students. And they never mentioned my visit there. Nothing was said. It was like the great silence. And at first I was really hurt. And then I really learned in that hurt that ultimately forgiveness is an act of self-love. It's really a way of disengaging ourselves from somebody else's nightmare. And the outer fruits of it are really secondary. What is most important is the practice of forgiveness. You may recall that some time ago an attempt was made on the life of the present Pope and he forgave his assassin, his would-be assassin. And this is what a colleague of the Pope wrote at the time. He said not to forgive is to be imprisoned by the past with old grievances that do not permit life to proceed with new business. Not to forgive is to yield oneself to another's control. If one does not forgive, then one is controlled by another's initiatives and is locked into a sequence of act and response, of outrage and revenge, tit-for-tat, escalating always. The present is endlessly overwhelmed and devoured by the past. Forgiveness frees the forgiver and extracts the forgiver from somebody else's nightmare.
And in the meditation practice, as we are more and more able to candidly and deeply accept and acknowledge the movements of our hearts and minds, really then the more we are able to bring the power of forgiveness both into our own lives and into our relationships with others. For what is so true is that in one moment sitting here we can have the minds of Mother Teresa and in the next it certainly is my own experience that we can have the mind of Adolf Hitler. Looking from the outside we all look like angels sitting in here but inside what seems for me to be so true is that we can be embroiled in angry thoughts and feelings of revenge and jealousy, sometimes with people that have moved on and are living their lives far away, sometimes even with people that are dead. And the question then is, who is it that is hurting? Who is it that is in pain? When I read about some of the things that happen in our world, I often wonder whether if I were born under the same circumstances and influences and conditions as the torturers and abusers and jailers of this world, if I would have acted any differently. This is Tetmadhan. He says, Promise me, promise me this day, while the sun is just overhead, even as they strike you down with a mountain of hate and violence, remember, brother, man is not our enemy. Just your pity, just your hate, invincible, limitless hatred will never let you face the beast in man. And one day, when you face this beast alone, your courage intact, your eyes kind, out of your smile will bloom a flower, and those who love you will behold you across 10,000 worlds of dying and of birth. Alone again, I'll go on, with bent head, but knowing the immortality of love, and on the long, rough road, both the sun and the moon will shine, lighting my way. And with the deepening of the meditation practice, we come to see also that the world in which we live is not haphazard or random in any way, that rather it is profoundly ordered on whatever level it is that we understand it. And as this truth is inculcated in our lives, we begin to know that our happiness or unhappiness is dependent not on our wishes, but rather on our actions and on our intentions. And when we see somebody acting in a way that is destructive, vindictive or hurtful either to themselves or to others, 
We receive this not with glee or self-satisfaction, not with thoughts of revenge or retaliation, but rather with the understanding and with a deep sense of compassion, knowing the karmic seeds that have been planted by the person that we're witnessing. And from this perspective of wisdom, really the imperative for forgiveness is so strong. Gandhi says, what is true of individuals is true of nations. One cannot forgive too much. The weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is an attitude of the strong. My mother visited me last year, and during her visit, I had the opportunity of sharing with her my feelings, some words, some tears from a place in my childhood that I really thought was lost to me. And during this process, she was really shattered, and she reached out several times to me to stop. But I continued really until I'd said everything that I needed to say and until every tear had been shed. And then it was her turn. And she told me at that time parts of her youth, of her childhood, that she'd never ever shared with anybody before. Not my father, not any of her friends. And it was shattering to me. Her youth had been an unimaginable tragedy. Under the circumstances, it was really clear that she'd mothered me very well, given the place from which she'd come from. And my heart opened to her in a way that I never thought possible. And when I reached out to her, there was a feeling of forgiveness and a sense of forgiveness that was really far beyond my wildest dreams. And this was really a further lesson for me. The importance of opening to the pain of those who hurt us, if possible, when possible, as much as possible. This is really precious beyond words. Because the truth ultimately is that we all want to be happy. For me, this process of forgiveness has on reflection been so much like a flower opening in the morning sun. Each petal making way, really, for the next one to open. And our willingness to enter tenderly the places of woundedness and pain, bring forth in time that which is necessary for the ever-deepening healing to happen. This week, my own flower opened somewhat further. 
the last pieces of a very painful puzzle have fallen into place. And I'm now living with the truth and with the recollection that my father, in his pain and confusion and fear, sexually brutalized me during all the years of my infancy. I never knew this before Tuesday this week. It really feels like a great relief knowing what I do now. These days have felt raw and have felt really tender. And there is a great sadness of heart too. But most of all, there is a deep gratitude and abiding love for the Dharma. For in the painful memories and recollections and emotions, there is also an abiding sense of the freedom and possibility of this next step along the way. This is Trungpa. He says, when you awaken your heart, you find to your surprise that your heart is empty. You find as you look closely that you were looking into outer space. What are you? Where is your heart if you look? If you really look, you won't find anything tangible or solid. Of course, you might find something very solid if you have a grudge against someone or if you've fallen possessively in love. But that's not the awakened heart. If you search for the awakened heart, if you put your hand through your ribcage and feel for it, there is nothing there except tenderness. You feel sore and soft. And if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel tremendous sadness. And ultimately, this kind of sadness does not come because you've been mistreated, because someone has insulted you, or because you feel impoverished. Rather, this experience of sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely exposed. There is no skin or tissue covering it. It is pure, raw meat. Even if a tiny mosquito lands on it, you feel so touched. Your experience is open and tender and very personal. And this open fearlessness comes from letting the world touch your heart. May we sit together for a few minutes, during which I'll guide a brief forgiveness meditation. attention to the heart center, 
reflecting on forgiveness and bringing a sense of forgiveness, if possible, to the heart. Maybe an image or a feeling of heart. Being open to the experiencing of forgiveness. I forgive myself. I forgive myself for whatever pain, suffering I may have caused. By my thoughts, words, actions, intentionally or unintentionally. I forgive myself for all the ways that I've hurt or caused suffering in my life. I forgive myself and of course if there is no stirring that too is okay just the willingness the intention to forgive is the beginning of healing I forgive myself Letting ourselves back into our own hearts. I forgive myself. Keep breathing. I forgive myself. Bring to mind now a sense, an image of someone close 
someone who perhaps you love, and extending feelings of forgiveness to this person. I forgive you for any way that you may have hurt me by your thoughts, your words, or your actions, be they intentional or unintentional. I forgive you. I forgive you. opening now a little further and bringing to heart an image or a sense of someone who has hurt us in a direct way. Perhaps if necessary not the big hurt but someone that has hurt us. I am willing to forgive you for the hurt, the pain, the suffering that you have caused by your words, thoughts, or actions, intentional or unintentional. I am willing to forgive you. Breathing deeply if necessary. I forgive you. Now, finally, to opening up heart and extending the feeling of forgiveness outward into the world. Perhaps in all directions to all beings that may have hurt caused suffering in any way. I forgive you.
for whatever hurt, pain or suffering has been caused. Intentional or unintentional by words or thoughts or actions. I forgive. Now asking for forgiveness for, from those whom we may have hurt. Please forgive me for whatever pain or suffering I may have caused by my words or thoughts or actions intentionally or unintentionally. I ask for forgiveness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.